We, uh, we're wrapping up a portion of the book of Romans. If you guys have felt any heaviness over these past you know, months that we've gone through the book of Romans, I mean, it has just been like truth upon truth upon truth upon truth, and it's been heavy truth, right? It's been doctrine upon doctrine upon doctrine upon doctrine, and then and, and when we, we feel like we've been marinating long enough you know, in, in, the, in the marinating sauce, and like, we're just like, oh, I can't take anymore. Paul does what he does so well. In the book of Romans, he says, you think you had salt there, but now you're missing some unami or umami or whatever it is. You know, I'm going to add some of that to here. It's just some curry paste. And these are strong, strong seasonings that we've been getting with the book of Romans. Finally, we get to the end of Romans chapter 11. And uh, after all of this strong doctrine, just to name some of them, like, All creation points to God's glory and existence, right? Remember that in Romans 1? Man is without excuse, right? We we say, oh, there's no God, and and Paul just says, hey, you're without excuse. Look at the world around you, the birds chirping, the stars in the sky, the snow on the mountains, the the majesty of the mountains, the lows of the valleys, the ocean, the waves, the creatures, all of these things, you're without excuse. There's a God. Only an infinite creator could have made all of this. Man is inherently sinful and the world is guilty. Remember, that was so fun preaching through all that stuff, wasn't it? Justification is through faith and grace alone. The only way that you and I are made right before God, the only way that we're reconciled back to the Father is through Christ's substitutionary atonement because of our sin and the wrath of God is satisfied against our sin. Therefore, you and I have been justified. We've been declared righteous. When God looks at us, he doesn't look at our sinful works. He sees the imputed righteousness of Christ in us. It was such a, that was like a a chapter where we were like, yes, this is awesome stuff. Then after that, we talked about how the Holy Spirit's role in reminding us the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit continually leading us in um, what is called the work of sanctification, where we say yes to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding us, and this is both and work, where we're, we're doing the work, but he's, he's empowering us to do the work, and we're, we're partnering together with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's telling us, hey, whenever you doubt whether you're a Christian or not, because the reality of that comes, remember the truth of what Jesus has done for you, and the Holy Spirit will be a seal upon your heart. And then we Learn that God preserves those who he saves. He's continued to working in us. When he started a good work, he will complete it. Remember that? And uh, God never gets writer's block, right? If he's the author, if he's the storyteller, he's got, remember, I think it was last week we talked about if you had this pen that you could write whatever you wanted, right? Actually, God's the author. And if he doesn't get, like, get halfway through your story and go, shoot, what was my plan for Tom? I don't remember. Oh, he'll figure it out. It's no big deal. No, God knows the whole thing, and he's, he's faithful to complete the good work that he started in you. And then all the fun stuff about God being sovereign and being in control, and he knows who he's going to save, and he actually sets some people aside for destruction. You're like, oh, God, how is this fair? And we come back to the truth that we actually don't want God to be fair because if he's fair, then every single person should receive discipline and destruction, but God is just and he's merciful. Some heavy truths. Now we get to the end of chapter 11, and what we see here is Paul turns from theology, these dark, uh, dark, deep, not dark, that's not what I meant to say. These very, very beautiful, okay? Uh, but very deep 
truths of who God is, deep theology, and he turns from theology and, and what a lot of commentators say is he turns to doxology, which is worship. And it's, it's this liturgical way of writing down the truths of who God is, and it's as if, like, what we always doxology a lot on our Sunday mornings, we doxologize, if that's a word, in our singing. We, we sing to God in our worship, but what Paul does with his pen is he writes down in his worship. And see, friends, my encouragement to us this morning, and I, when I was preparing this, we had no, I had no idea, like, you know, the, the virus was going to be such a thing, and you know, fear was going to be running rampant like it is now, and toilet paper would be flying off the shelves. And listen, we're going to check your bags on the way out, by the way, because don't be stealing no toilet paper, all right? <laughs> but when we behold the truth of who God is, his majesty, the unsearchable rich, riches of his character, and his dealings with humanity and creation and the godness of who God is, it has to result for us in worship. And I would, I would throw back to you a challenge this morning. That if you are not found in a place of desiring and naturally just wanting to give God praise and, and adoration, and gratitude in your heart, the way you not only maybe sing, because singing is a part of worship, it's just a part of worship, but in the way you live your life. If, if, if there's not such an impetus inside you to want a desire to be able to like burst out somehow and talk about how beautiful and how amazing God is, I would suggest that perhaps the truth of who God is has not impacted your heart. Because you see, after 11 chapters of Paul telling the, the church in Rome about the truth of who God is in his beautiful gospel and his plan of salvation, Paul cannot help but get to the end of chapter 11 and say what we're going to read here in just a moment. And that is, I'm not throwing that on you and saying, hey, you have to like always be jumping up and down, you always have to be really loud, you have to be the guy out on the street. Is, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the reality of who God's created you to be, your personality, but being subject to the truth of who God is. And so that looks different ways for all of us. But are you a worshiper? Not because you come here on a Sunday and you get moved by, you know, the band doing really, you know, Riley's rocking it on the cymbals and it feels like the Shekinah glory of God and the angels are, you know, not, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about emotion with the goosebumps and you're like, I love the emotionalism. We're not talking about emotionalism. We're talking about the absolute objective concreteness, truth of who God is. When that gets into our heart, we can, let me, let me play, say it this way. I'm running out of time already. See what you guys are doing to me? I always do this. It's your fault. But if a Mack truck, if you're standing out in the street and a Mack truck comes hurling down at full speed, hits you, your person, not just you and your car, hits your person, you will be changed. Radically. And anybody in a blink of an eye, that's out of context, Tom, but that is true. And when people say, I'm not impacted, I, I have not been changed, and I would say, brother, sister, perhaps the truth of who God is 
has not got into the recesses of your hearts. This happens for all of us, talking to myself. There are moments too often that I would like to admit or should as a Christian, as your pastor, (laughs) where I live a life where the majesty of God kind of sometimes is a, eh, I know that, and I go out through my day. If I truly allow the beauty of who God is, his riches of salvation, what he has done, I can't help but react. You guys okay? All right, let's read it. The end of Romans. We're just going to do three verses. Now, theoretically, that means less time preaching. But we all know what's going to happen. Verse 33 of, of, of chapter 11 says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And notice that there's an exclamation point here. I'm going to read it how I think Paul is going to, like, if he could say it. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Exclamation point. If there was an emoji on there, it had a little nuclear bomb coming out of the... Next exclamation point is, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It's not up there. Okay, I don't know what's going on. You just have to take my word for it that this is what it says. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. Amen. See, we have 11 chapters of marinating in these deep doctrinal truths. The reason why we do all the things we do, the reason why we believe all the things we believe is because of Romans 1 through 11. And then at the end of that, Paul worships. What he does is he, he, he gets from his sitting standpoint, maybe he's writing with a pen, I don't know, a scribe's taking his words, and then what he does is he gets down on his knees and he begins to worship because of these truths of God. And what I want us to do this morning is just look at, at four kind of statements that Paul says here. And, and ask yourself, as we go through these statements, God, is this, is this alive in me? Is this active in me? Is this true of me? And if it's not, right while the word is being preached, is to say, Holy Spirit, will you help me in those areas? Holy Spirit, will you, will you light a flame in my heart to see these truths? And would it result in action? And the first one I want us to understand is that there should be an awe and wonder about who God is. He says this in verse 33, all the exclamations, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Just, just so, I, I kind of geek out. I'm, a, I'm one of the guys that on a Sunday afternoon, I'll put on Netflix. And if you look through my Netflix, you know, like suggestions, uh, a lot of my Netflix will always default toward like documentaries, right? Or, or these things because I kind of, I love learning about these things because it, it, I get to nerd out and I watch a lot of nature stuff or things about science because when I'm sitting there watching this, it does for me what I think Paul's trying to encourage us here is I start to see the, gra- the grandeur of who God is. 
right? And, and, then, and then I'll be like telling my kids, did you know that this amoeba and blah, blah, blah? And they're like, oh my gosh, dad, you know? And especially my wife, she's like, is there anything else that we can watch right now? She would like prefer to watch Hallmark Channel, especially during Christmas time. It's the same movie over and over and over again. <laughs> But I'll sit there and I watch these Netflix things. And so I just wanted to like, give us a couple things. If we can go back to Romans chapter 1 when Paul says, hey, you're without excuse, whether there's a God. I want us to kind of see this God who's the creator, okay? To, to maybe like light a fire of awe and wonder. Now, maybe this doesn't do it for you. I don't know, but it does it for me. And so you have to sit through it. So there you go. The Mariana Trench is over 36 thousand feet deep. What is the Mariana Trench? That is the deepest part of our known earth, uh, and it's in the sea, and it's underwater, and it's just like, it's like Death Valley, if you could think of it. Death Valley in the ocean. 36,000 feet deep. Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, would still be over a mile underwater if it was planted at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. That's deep. Now, if you were to place yourself at the bottom, you would experience, here's some nerdy stuff, you ready for this? 15,750 PSI. Now, some of you are like, what's PSI? That's pounds per square inch. That's more than a thousand times than what we feel here on the surface. You, you feeling gravity right now, it keeps you down whether you're lighter or, you know, when you lose a little weight, you feel a little like you're bouncing a little bit. When you're heavier, you're like, feel a little more crushed, right? You ever swim to the bottom of a swimming pool? Your ears are like, holy cow, what's going on? That's eight feet deep. We're talking 36,000 feet deep. You get to the bottom of that. What happens to your body? You are squished instantly. There are creatures living on the bottom of this. Now, here's the beauty of this. 36,000 feet deep, God in his infinite wisdom created this, perhaps man will never ever see the bottom of this trench. I think there are some who have done it already. We're getting further in advancement. But we, most of us will never experience 36,000 feet deep underneath the water, yet God in his creation and his grandeur places little sea creatures under there. Why? To bring him glory. Little sea creatures who, who will not go like this and squish because they have these little ballasts in their, in their body that can regulate the pressure because God created them from the beginning of time. He knew that I will create this little tiny sea slug and this little sea slug is going to sing praises to me because he's so beautiful. Let's, let's go like from low, let's go up to high. I was going to play the sound, sounds for you and I couldn't even get them, but there is a star called V.Y. Canis Majoris. You all know V.Y. Canis Majoris. It's 1.7 billion miles in diameter. It's so big that if the earth were a golf ball, it would be the size of Mount Everest compared to the earth. In comparison, you could fit seven quadrillion earths inside it. Guess what? That star is in our galaxy, billions of light years away, so big that you and I don't feel it ever. We don't have any, 
God in his infinite wisdom creates something so big that you and I can't even fathom how can something even be that big that exists. And you know how it became? God said this, let there be light. 1.7 billion miles in diameter instantly happens. I wanted to play for you these, what they got is an electronic telescope and they pointed at these stars and they found that these stars spin thousands of times per second. And they give off, it sounds like if you were to hear the recording, it sounds like violin strings being played because they all oscillate at different, and you hear them go, that is happening right now as we're sitting here. What are they doing? Singing praises to God. And when we, when we look at all this theology and we go, whatever, whatever, no, we see the one who created all this, what it should do is put awe and wonder inside our hearts, the, the majesty and the grandeur of who our God is, we should be geeking out about this. And the way we should geek out is worship. It should result in worship. Now, not only is God amazing in his creation, but here's where the rubber meets the road. The same God, 36,000 feet below sea level, the same God who put the stars in the sky, billions upon billions upon billions upon billions, and spoke it with just the word, all of these things happen from nothing. God creates from nothing. He didn't have raw materials so laying around somewhere, and he's like, there's extra stuff over here. You know what I'll do with it? I'll create some people, and I'll create. No, it was void. There was a vacuum, and God spoke things into existence, and the beauty of that is, friends, this same God, creator of the universe, the one who makes the stars, the little sea slug on the bottom of the ocean, is the same God who rescues us from our sin is the same God who reaches down and in his plan of salvation says, I will not just be fair, I will go beyond fairness and I will be just and I will be merciful and I will rescue those who do not deserve my rescue. And if that doesn't cause us to worship God, when we sing, like, sing songs like, the earth shall shake and tremble before him, chains will break the chains that you and I used to experience, if that doesn't cause worship to something geek out in our hearts, then this truth, perhaps, has not gone from our head to our hearts. Oh boy. That was page number one. <laughs> not only should we have awe and wonder, but we should understand also God is not just better than us. <laughs> I said that, I think, a couple of weeks in community group. You know, God's not better than us, and everyone freaked out. So I added the word just. God is not just better than us. He is eternally other than us. See, the problem is that we often want to think of God as a little bit higher than man. Now, how, how high should God be if he's higher than man? One inch? No, that's way too small. We must think of God as much higher than that. Ten feet? No, 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 no. Kelly, much, much higher than that. A thousand feet? We're getting closer, Kelly. How about 10,000? I think we understand now what we're talking about. Friends, that is not even close to how other and how much better, if we could use a word, than God is than us. If I could, if this was sea level right here, and I could put a measurement and go up, and for eternity, it will continue to go up and up and up, even at the end of eternity, the distance between this 
being man and God being at the end of that yardstick would still not even measure the distance of how God is other than us eternally. We cannot hold God to the same account that we hold ourselves. He is God. And this is what Paul says, verses 34 through 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, God does not need your counsel. In other words, God owes you nada. For those of you who don't speak Spanish, that means nothing. Zero, zilch, zippo, patient zero, okay? Too soon. All right, sorry. For those, for who knows the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Obviously, this is a rhetorical question that Paul is throwing back at us, but the answer is nobody. (laughs) Nobody. He's not asking because he wants to know the answer. We know the answer that it is nobody. Now, here, here's an example of how this works. And, and I think we often do this with God. My kids will always, not always, but often, very often, that's not an exaggeration, ask me a question. And then when I give them the answer, they're asking me like, hey, dad, can we um, have ice cream for dinner? You know, I don't know, whatever they want to ask. Or can we like go to Disneyland today? And I go, no, it's either that or college. So no, not today. That's not happening. <laughs> can we do this? And, and you know, so then... I, I'll give them an answer, and if the answer isn't something they wanted to hear, what do they do? Oh, gosh dang it. You always say no, or I'll always say no. You want me to say no? Okay, well, I'll just be true to what you say. I don't always say no. No, you know how it is. The kids want, and I go, I always throw back. If you don't want the answer that I'm going to give you, why did you ask? See, the problem is my kids are hoping that I will answer with something that they want. That's what they're wanting. And when they don't get the answer they want, then they get all, get all upset. And we do the same thing with God when Paul says, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor? God, I'm going to ask you a question. God, I'm going to throw this. Hey, uh, what do you think about this? And God says, no, I, I've actually, for you specifically, I'm telling you, no, that's not good for you. Oh! As if somehow we know better then the God, here's us, then the God for eternity is still higher. That, that, by the way, as I've been talking, that has continued to keep going higher, right? The God who's at the end of that, and there's no end of it, somehow we know better than that. But God, look at my life. Look at my circumstances. Surely you must have caught, this caught you off guard. You know, Kelly, I... See, I'm already at the end. I'm outside of space and time. I'm already at the end of this. I already know the plan I have for you. Your job is to trust and obey and not get all, if I say yes or no. The other side of that is where he says in verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Let me tell you, friends, we do not want a God who we can indebt him or he's indebted to us. You do not want a God who, one, doesn't know everything, and two, you do not want a God who's indebted by us. If that's true of God, he ceases to be God. The very fact that God doesn't need our counsel 
and that he owes us nothing, is that that's what makes him God. You do not want a God. You say, God, look, I did all these good things this week. God, look, I served all these people. God, I even went to church when the coronavirus was going crazy. Surely that counts for something. You know, my bank account's a little low. You saw me give last week. What's up? God just says, great job, you gave. You were faithful. Well done. I'll continue to be faithful to you. Yeah, but I want you to be faithful like this. God just says, no, this is how I'm going to be faithful. And you're like, God, you owe me something. And God says, no, hey, Kelly, remember, or who has given a gift to me that I might be repaid? Nobody. That's the truth of who we serve as God. That should cause worship. Because I don't want to serve, I don't want to worship a God who I have anything on him. That's not God. You guys okay? Isaiah says this, chapter 55, verses 8 through 9. says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I have to remind myself of that truth all the time. Number three, we, we need to see that all things are created through in him, to and for. So verse 36, for him, or sorry, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Everybody say all. all. That was like half-hearted. We don't do anything half-hearted here at Southlands. Come on, everybody say all. all. All right, there you go. That's so much better. Now, this is a reason for our worship dependence and motivation for our reverence for God. It should be because all things were created in him, to him, through him, for him, by him, 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 him. This is what John Stott says. I think we have a quote in here, and he's a commentary that I love and just so helpful, and I was reading it this week. It says this, if we ask where all things came from in the beginning and still come from today, the answer must be from God. If we ask how all things came into being and remain in being, our answer is through God. If we ask why everything came into being and where everything is going, our answer must be for and to God. Everything. You know, Colossians talks about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and how Jesus is was in, cre- in creation. He spoke the word, and, and it's in Jesus that all things are held together. I think we were in a group somewhere, I think it was a community group, and somebody was talking about atoms being held together. And maybe it's true that God holds all things together. Maybe that's referring to atoms. Friends, I believe it is. I think God is not only so infinite and so other than us, as Isaiah tells us here, in his all things of holding it together, but he's still, he's so intimate. And Emmanuel, God with us, that he, he's so intimate in the sense that he keeps our atoms from flying apart. 
He keeps everything, the laws that he created. He doesn't just speak a law and say, okay, the law will fix itself and the law will do what it continues to do because I set it in motion as if he's, we're deists somehow and God speaks a word and then steps away from creation and just lets it do what it does. No, what God does is he speaks a word and then he intimately keeps his word and then he intimately keeps all things together. He holds them all together and his mind is continually on those things and every hair on our head, every sparrow that hits the window, everything that happens, God is completely aware of all those things. I love that you and I worship a God who's big and far and other, but we also worship God who's near, who's intimate, and he's same, right? Jesus, fully God, fully man. I was just talking with a friend this week. He's like, man, I, I don't get this, like, I need to be more like God. And I said, you know, he, he's feeling struggles and he's, he's talking about how he's depressed and he's feeling broken and how he feels so far away from God. And I, I said, the truth is, the reality is that Jesus still bears the scars on his hands and his feet. In my mind, we, we should think Jesus, once he ascended back into heaven, his body became like all healed up and perfect. And if we were to look at him now, we'd be like, don't even recognize him anymore. But no, Jesus still bears these scars in his body. I think one to remind us every time that we feel like he's so far, he's so other that Jesus says, look, I still have, if you were, you could see right there because there's a hole there. If you were to see, there's still a piercing in my side where the Roman soldier wanted to see if I was dead or not and pierced my side and the water had separated in my blood and it gushed out and there was confirmation I was dead. Look, it's right there. I died. Physically died. And when I physically died, I took your sin upon myself. And now your sin is dead too, just like I died. But it didn't end there. I was raised again three days later and I send it into heaven and I still bear these marks to remind you that although I hold all things together from a cosmic standpoint, I hold all things together in an intimate relationship with you. If that doesn't cause us to worship, something's wrong. The last thing, I think we're going to end on time, guys. The last thing is where Paul says at the end of verse 36, to him be glory forever. Amen. See, God deserves to be given all glory because he is all glorious. There is nothing and no one, nor has there been, nor will there ever be, anyone more glorious than God. God is glory. He's the definition of glory. The Westminster Catechism says, you've probably heard this, man's chief end is to glorify God. This is the reason why we've been, we exist. It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I, I like what John Piper has kind of tweaked it, and he said, um, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Now, why do I think that's helpful? If God is the most glorious entity, being, we can't even like 
use a word that describes God's person, right? But, so we have to use these homer words like thing or person. If God is the most glorious thing, person, that's out there in the existence of the universe, and our chief end is to glorify him, that means that you and I, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, or a believer of Jesus or a disciple of Christ, whether you are uh, an atheist, or what, you, the reality is that you were born, you were created to be a worshiper. And there is never a moment in life that you are not worshiping. Whether you're worshiping God, whether you're worshiping your family, whether you're worshiping yourself, whether you're worshiping television, whether you're entertainment, whether you're worshiping food, etc., there is never a moment in your life where you are not worshiping because we can't help it. It's what we do. We worship all day long. Now, we don't always worship God. And what Paul is trying to get us to understand is if God is the most glorious, is the most beautiful, and basically what we're trying to say is God is the most worthy of worship than anything else that can be worshiped. And if you, who are created to worship, what needs to happen is an understanding of my creation, the reason I exist, my purpose, and it ultimately goes towards the one who is to be worshiped. But somehow we get those things wrong. And we find our satisfaction in other things. And we say things like, how can God desire or want me to bring glory to him alone? Doesn't that seem a little megalomaniac, right? Doesn't that seem a little arrogant that God would want to be worshipped above all other things. No, friends, it's for our good that we place our worship in him because if I was created to worship, why not worship the thing that should be worshipped? Because my eyes get turned and I want to worship this and this and that. And Paul says here at the end, to God be all glory forever. Amen. Friends, we can't allow theology and truth to just be dead and dusty. <clears throat> no, it's not coronavirus. It's just dust coming off my Bible. See, this, this has to go from here to here. And I understand for a lot of us here, but it's got to go from here to here. And if it hasn't, if it hasn't, please ask yourself, Lord, why, why are these beautiful truths of who you are, why are they not resulting in worship? God, will you show me again? Will you show me? Let's just do that just for a moment. Can we do that? Just close our eyes and say, God, will you show me again your grace that you bestowed on me? Let me just talk about that grace while your, your eyes are closed. See, this grace came to you when you didn't deserve it. This grace came to you when you were an enemy of God. This grace came to you when you didn't have any strength or moral willpower in your own ability to desire forgiveness or to be rescued. This grace came to you when you actually turned your back on God. This grace came to you in, in spite of you being born imperfect and having a sinful nature. 
This grace came to you from a place of perfection and eternal security and harmony where nothing was misaligned. It came to you from a place of perfect relational bliss between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this grace left that perfection and came into a world that was broken and messy and full of sickness and actually spat on this grace and cussed at this grace, turned its nose up at this grace and said, leave us alone. We want nothing to do with you to this grace. And this grace came in spite of all that and said, I love you. I love you so much. I will lay my life down. And one of the most painful, physically, emotionally, spiritual ways that could ever be possible, this grace came to us changed us from the inside out. Jesus, we thank you for the truth of who you are. We thank you for these deep doctrines. We thank you that these will never change. We thank you that we can put our faith in these things. And Jesus, we want to respond and with gratitude in our hearts and thankfulness this morning and tears of joy, so to speak, because you changed us, because you gave us your grace when we didn't deserve it. Help us this morning where we, we lack that truth in our hearts. Help us tomorrow as we go and fear's going to want to creep in and the world's going to say all these things. Help us to remember the grace that was given to us when we didn't deserve it. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. Amen.